We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today again, and we've got a, a, a passage that I think is going to be um, incredibly helpful for us to study today. But before we dive into that, I want to let you know that several of you went to our library last week to pick up the Acts journaling books and found that we were already sold out. We have more, so if you want to go there today, we have a lot more than we did last week. Uh, we're, I guess we're only able to get a few at a time or something, so we're getting as many as we can, and there'll be some in the library. Hopefully, we'll have enough for you today if you want to grab those. They're just six bucks a piece, and it allows you to have the scripture on one side and a notes page on the other side. It's the same version we're using in the services, and we're going to be in Acts for a long time, so if you want to follow along and keep all your notes in there. That is a great way to do it. Now, one of the things that, that um, thankfully, we don't have to deal with a lot in our area as Christians is a lot of persecution for our faith. Um, we, don't, we don't struggle with the fear that maybe somebody's going to bust down our doors and come in here and stop us from worshiping God or threaten us. But the reality is that's not the case in many parts of the world today. Around the world, there are a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who face severe persecution for their faith in God, and especially if they dare to tell other people about Jesus. I mean, there are some places where it's okay if you're a Christian, but if you let other people know and, and try to help them become a Christian, then that's a big, big problem. And I want to share with you a story. This is from a, a few years ago, several years ago, actually, but a story of a man, a pastor in China, and the, the challenges that he faced, and that's going to kind of lead us into our message time today. Uh, Li Deshian, the 45-year-old Chinese house church pastor arrested near Huadu, Guangdong province on November 9th, just received another 15 days of detention, and fears are mounting he may be tried and sentenced to a three-year jail term. Li has been kept in isolation since his arrest to prevent him from evangelizing other inmates. John Short, a Christian worker and friend of Li's in Hong Kong, was informed by Chinese police today that Lee's detention was extended because he, quote, was showing no remorse for his actions, those actions being sharing Jesus with others. Short also said that three other Christians were arrested along with Lee, a man and, a, and two women who will be released on Wednesday. One of the detained women had been kicked repeatedly by arresting officers. Under Chinese law, a person must be charged with a crime within a month of their arrest or be released. There are fears that Lee's extended detention may be the prelude to such a charge, leading to a possible three-year jail sentence called re-education through labor. Prior to his arrest, Lee had been warned four times by police to desist from his ministry of teaching in house churches. A tense standoff occurred when an annex to a house used for meetings was torn down in early October. Other leading house church figures in Guangdong province, including Samuel Lam in Guangzhou and four other pastors, have been issued similar warnings. The warnings are believed to be in response to the president's speech calling for tightened control over religion. This was several years ago, by the way. Lee Deshian has been jailed before, and his fingers have been shortened by the difficult prison labor of watchmaking. He was also manacled for months while in jail in the early 1980s. Lee stressed to Short, I am not a political dissident. I am simply a servant of Jesus, compelled to preach his gospel to everyone. The authorities are dealing with a man who literally would rather die than not spread the gospel, Short said. One of Lee's favorite verses is, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that do nothing more. Rather, fear him, capital him, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Lee maintains he should be free to preach the gospel in China. Now, I'm incredibly thankful that we don't face that kind of persecution here. And this was, this was some time ago, and this is not true of every part of China that's important to recognize um, but it's true in a lot of parts of the world even today. 
that, that there is a serious persecution happening among believers. And we, we need to remember our brothers and sisters around the world and be praying for them and asking for God's protection over them in a way, but, but even more so asking for God to help them to continue to be bold in their stand for the faith. Because Jesus told us that troubling times are going to come and people are going to persecute you as they persecuted him. And the, the message that he had for them was to continue to stand firm and stand strong, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And what I want to do today is look back at a time when the early church started to face similar types of persecution, or at least the threats of persecution. And I want us to pay close attention to what was their response. What did they do in the face of threats of physical danger? They, their lives could be ruined economically. They could be ruined relationally. They could be ruined physically. And what was their response to the threats of the leadership that did not want them sharing Jesus with other people? That's what we're going to look at today. So hopefully you've had enough time to turn to Acts. Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 23, and here's what we read. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Now let's pause there for a minute to just do a little bit of review. Peter and John, as you know, were involved in this healing of the lame man uh, in the temple. And after that, they had this opportunity to share Jesus with lots of people. Lots of people trusted in Jesus. And the leaders at the time, especially the Sadducee leaders, were very upset about this. They had a bone to pick with Jesus. They did not like Jesus' teaching. They didn't like his theology. They, they didn't like that he threatened their little operation that they had going. And so the fact that Peter and John were continuing this movement was a big problem for them. So they confronted them, and they threatened them. And they said, you better... Stop. And Peter said, we can't stop. We're going to obey God and not you. And the leaders wanted to imprison them, beat them, do something terrible to them, but they couldn't because the crowd was so on Peter and John's side because of the miracle they just saw that they felt if we do anything to these two guys, then they're going to riot and we're going to have a big problem on our hands. And the, the, at the time, the way the, the government was set up, the Romans were allowing the Jewish people a lot of latitude in how they kind of ruled and continued their temple operation. And the fear was if there's a riot or too many riots, then the Romans are just going to come in and they're going to shut this all down. And our whole operation ceases. Right now, we have a pretty sweet deal going at the temple. We're able to make a lot of money here. The Sadducee leaders, they're, they're some of the wealthiest people in Israel. And, and they don't want to risk that. And so if there's anything that will get them to stop in, in whatever course of action they're in, it's the threat of a riot that might cause the Roman soldiers to come in and say, that's it. You guys are stirring up trouble. We're not going to let you do this anymore. So they did not pursue Peter and John or do anything else to them. They let them go because of the threat of that riot. And now we see in verse 23, Peter and John have returned to the other believers and they've told them everything that the priests and the elders said. As I was uh, reading it this week, I, I read through this passage many, many times and I couldn't help but think about what would it be like to be one of those believers sitting in that house when Peter and John come in and share the story with you. I mean, can you believe it? We were there. We just saw this incredible healing. We preached the gospel to all these people. And then the, the priests and the Sadducee leaders, they arrested us and we knew they wanted to hurt us. They threatened us. And you wouldn't believe what Peter said. He said, basically take a hike. And they didn't like that very much, but they couldn't do anything about it. And then they let us go. And here we are, they let us go. But they threatened us to never speak of Jesus again. And they share all of this stuff back with the believers. And I think it was so encouraging for them. I have to imagine there's a little bit of, you know, throat kind of gulp like, oh man, this is big deal. 
This is big time here. Now these leaders, we're on their radar and they're against us and they're opposed to us and they have already threatened that we better not do this again. What is their response going to be? What are they going to do with this? So that's the next several verses. It's the believer's response to the threat of persecution from the Jewish leaders. And here's what they say in Acts 4.24. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And here is their prayer. We're going to walk through this and see several things that we can pick out from their prayer that might be helpful for us today. The first one is, O sovereign Lord, uh, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. They begin by recognizing that God is sovereign. He is the sovereign God. Now, that means that God has the ability and the authority to do whatever he wants to do. He has the ability and the authority to do whatever he wants to do. What that does not mean is that God actively causes all things. That would be fatalism. There were groups at the time that believed in fatalism, but the early church was not one of them at that time. Um, there are certain Christians today that do believe in fatalism, but I, I don't believe that's possible. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why I think that is because uh, I, I just have a simple question that I'll ask first. Is temptation a real thing? Does temptation exist? Are you ever tempted? It's okay. You can answer. Are you ever tempted? Yeah. Okay. I think, I think we're all tempted. The Bible talks about temptation as a thing that really exists. But here's an interesting thing. In James chapter one, the Bible says this. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. So if temptation is a real thing, it exists. But the Bible tells us God never tempts anyone, that there's something that happens that God never does. And that, that tells me that God is not actively causing every little thing to happen. I've known people at times who, who have challenged on this and said, well, I think God actually causes every little thing that happens. He uh, uh, directs every single thing that happens. Like even if I move this pen from here to here, God made me do that. And I think there are a couple of problems with that. One is we just looked at this verse that says there is something that God never does, but that actually happens. And the other is that that means every time I do something wrong or sinful, then I can just say, well, God made me do it. He, he caused that to happen. That's not the way it works. See, what happens is God is sovereign in that he has the authority and the ability to do whatever he wants. And so because he has all authority and all power, all ability, that means there's nothing that happens that he does not either cause or allow. There's nothing that happens that he doesn't either cause or allow. And so we see in scripture many times where God allows very bad things to happen. God even works through the bad things that people do. That doesn't mean he's causing them. That means he knows what they're going to do. He knows they're going to do that. And he allows that to take place or he uses that as a part of his plan. It doesn't mean he's causing that bad thing to happen. And so when we say that God is sovereign, that means he has the authority and the ability to do whatever he wants. Nothing happens that he has not caused or allowed to take place. If he's all powerful and he's all knowing, then he knows something bad is about to happen. He can stop it, but he chooses not to. That means nothing happens unless he has allowed it to happen or, of course, caused it to happen. That's the sovereignty of God. And they trust in the sovereignty of God. They trust that nothing they've experienced is something that God did not know was going to happen and allowed to happen. That gives you a different perspective on things. When you experience some kind of tragedy in your life, it's important to recognize God actually allowed this to happen. He wasn't asleep on the job. He knew it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen. So that changes the perspective from, God, what are you, what are you doing? Why, why did this happen? To, God, why did you allow this to happen? 
Is there, what, there must be some reason, there must be some purpose behind this, something that you're gonna teach me, some good that you're gonna do through it. You've allowed this to take place because nothing happens that God does not cause or allow. That's his sovereignty. And then in verse 25, they say, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, and now they're gonna reference God's work in the past. They're talking about the prophecy of God. That's number two, the prophecy of God. They're pointing back to the past and saying that what is happening today among them, what they've just experienced, is not anything really new or unknown. It's not a surprise. It's not like... God planned on Jesus taking a different course of action and then they killed him and he goes, oh no, I'm gonna have to rethink this. It's like, no, this was planned from long ago. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through, your, through our ancestor David about these things they're going to get into. This was always part of the plan. The Messiah would face adversity. The Messiah would be killed. The Messiah would rise again. The early church would face adversity. Jesus said as much. You're going to experience many troubles, many hardships in my name. And that's all to be expected. So what did David prophesy about? Verse 25. David wrote, why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? Now, if you recognize that, that's because that is the passage of Scripture that our worship team read earlier today. It's from Psalm 2. Why are the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? It's recognizing that fighting against God is a futile thing to do. It's a waste of time. It's the futility of those who are against God. That's number three. The futility of those who are against God. If you're going to set yourself up in opposition to God, it may seem like it's working for a little while. But in the long run, it's not going to work out. And so they're bringing this point up from Psalm 2 that nations rise up against God, but it's futile. It's not going to work. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he knows everything. Because he's all powerful. If a nation is able to rise up and fight against God for any period of time, it's only because he has allowed it to happen. When you connect those dots between God's sovereignty and these nations trying to rise up against him and oppose him, that's what's going to happen. It is futile. Why did they waste their time, he says, with their futile plans. And then in verse 26, the kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city, they say. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. Here we see the enemies of God, enemies of God in the past enemies of God in the present, enemies who, who came up to oppose what God was doing, to oppose Jesus, and yet it's all futile. Their time is wasted. Nothing they're doing is actually going to work. And you know, the crazy thing about this is a lot of these people thought that they were doing good things. A lot of these people who rose up against Jesus thought, I believe, thought in their mind, I'm doing a good thing by doing this. And yet they weren't actually considering what they were doing and how they were going about it was in opposition to God's plans. I think there are a lot of times that you and I will think we're doing a good thing, but we don't take the time to stop and to pray and to get wise counsel and to search the scriptures and to question and say, is this really a good thing I'm doing? Or is this something just that I think is a good thing that I'm doing? And so a lot of people oppose God thinking they have good reasons, thinking they have good motives without taking the time to question and say, is what I'm doing here a waste of time? Because God is not in this. God is not a part of what I am doing. And one of the interesting things about this too 
is that if you are an enemy of God, the fact, and you're opposing God, the fact that you're doing that means that you're in a very precarious situation. These believers were in a dangerous situation in the early church. They had just been threatened by the Jewish leaders. They have reason to be concerned for their physical safety. And yet the reality is the people that threaten them are in a more dangerous situation. Why is that? Because if they oppose God, then they're his enemies, not the believer's enemies. And I think that that's what these, this early church understood. They didn't take these threats as being there against us. They took these threats as, as being there against God. And so they recognized rightly that these Jewish leaders were not actually opposing them. We're not actually fighting them, but they're enemies of God. And what did they say about it? It's a waste of time. It's futile. It's not going to do any good. There are times, I think, uh, when you and I face opposition in our life for something that is a, that is a righteous cause, that is good. We want to stand up for our faith. And, and people are against us. We want to stand up for, for biblical principles. And people are against us. And we, and we might think in that moment that they're against us. When really we have to recognize they're against God. They're not against us. They're fighting against God. And ultimately that will be futile. In fact, they're in a much more dangerous position than we are. If they're against God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what Brother Lee mentioned in, in the report earlier. That's one of his favorite verses. Don't fear people who want to persecute you or stop you or criticize you for doing something that you know is good, that you know is biblical, that you know is something God wants you to do. They're not opposed to you. They're against God. Don't fear them. Fear God. Follow him, do what he says, and that person who is opposing you, if they're actually opposing God, they're in a much more dangerous position. They should fear God who has the ability to throw them into hell, destroy both soul and body in hell. I think we often make the mistake of looking at people who oppose us in a righteous pursuit as being our enemies when they're really God's enemies and even Jesus said, you're to love your enemies and to think about the fact that that person that we think is our enemy, God loves them. Think about some of the, the, the prominent figures that you read about, that you see in the news or political figures, people who are leaders, people who we might be very opposed to in different ways, who we might really dislike their policies, their actions, the things that they do. We see some of the things on, online, on social media and on the, in the news, and we think that is so immoral, that is so terrible. And it's, it's really a, a challenging thing, at least for me, to not loathe those people. And yet God tells me to love them, to not feel like, oh, those people are all against us. And yet realize that those people are against God. Put the, put the appropriate amount of blame where it is. They're not against us. They're against God. And their position is so dangerous. And yet God loves them and wants to see them turn from their ways and turn to him and have a relationship with him and be part of his family. And maybe that should change the way we think about people who we view as our enemies, who we think about people who oppose us in different ways. It's so easy to get discouraged and depressed when we see the culture degrading around us and yet to realize these are people that God loves. They're opposed to God, not us. And they're in a very dangerous situation. We don't need to fear them. We fear God. As Peter said, I'm not going to obey men. I'm going to obey God. So let's get back to this prayer of these believers. In verse 28 of chapter 4. They say, but everything they did, so they're talking about these enemies of God, everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And so again, they acknowledge the will of God. They talked about the sovereignty of God, and now they're acknowledging the will of God. 
And there's a really interesting point here to make if you understand Sadducean theology. And, we, and I've given you just enough that if you remember, you may be able to pick up on it. The Sadducees believed that God created the world, and then it was just sort of a set it and forget it Ron Popeil type. Anybody remember Ron Popeil? You know, the infomercial guy who's just like, it's amazing. Just set it and forget it. You just throw your chicken in there. Boom, it comes out. It's all done. They've had that kind of view of God, like God kicked off the world and then just sort of let it go, and he wasn't actively involved in it anymore. He gave us some rules to, to live by, and he set everything in motion. But at that point, God was just like, all right, now it's up to you. And you kind of do whatever you want with it. And he wasn't actively involved in the world. And yet, what these believers are acknowledging here is that even the work of the enemies of God had to be included in the will of God. He is still actively involved in the world. And so this is a direct opposition to the beliefs of the Sadducee leaders who were just threatening them to say, no, it's not just about you. It's not just about human leaders. God is still actively involved in this world. And since God is sovereign and nothing happens that he does not create or allow, that he does not cause or allow, we know that everything that happened was according to his will. Now, does that mean that God caused the bad things that those people did? No, not necessarily. It, it means that God knew the bad things that people would do, and he allowed them to happen. He may have even orchestrated events to create opportunities for those things to happen, where those people would choose, and he knew they would choose, to do those terrible things. But God works through that. God is still involved in this world. He is not distant or separate. And that's just a little kind of side thing that I think we can pick up on from their prayer here. And up until now, everything in this prayer has been focused entirely on God, his sovereignty. Nothing's happened that he hasn't caused or allowed. The prophecy of God from the past that proves that he knew what was going to happen. This is no surprise for God. The futility of those who oppose God because he is so powerful that he will always win in the end. The enemies of God, both past and present, who God even works through what they do to accomplish his purposes and the will of God. All of this has been all about God. And now we finally get to the part where I would have started, just being honest with you. Because I am a very self-centered person, and I'm a very, a very shallow, simple person. And when I think of approaching God about a situation like this, if someone were to threaten me, I don't think my first thought would be, I'm going to spend the next several minutes just praising and thanking God for who he is and acknowledging his sovereignty. Just being honest with you there. I probably would jump right into, Lord, help me. Lord, protect me. Lord, you know, those kinds of things. Like, that's where I would go. And the believers are going to make a request here of God. And their request is absolutely amazing. The request of God. What do they want him to do? Well, it's got to be to keep them safe, right? Maybe avoid any potential suffering. Give them an easier time with the authorities. Give them favor in the eyes of the authorities. Maybe make the culture less immoral around them. That was a huge problem at the time with all the Roman influence coming in. Just rampant immorality all over the place. There's a terrible culture. Awful slavery going on in, in different places and bad treatment of people, discrimination all over the place. Um, maybe they're going to ask God to help all of those things. Here's what they say. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. 
That's the request. Give us great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, instead of asking for safety, instead of asking for comfort, instead of asking for resolution to this problem, instead of asking for the laws and and regulations to be such that would protect their religious freedom, instead of all of that, they say, hey, you know that thing that caused us to experience all those threats? We want more of that. Give us more opportunities to do the thing that makes these people upset. Give us more opportunities to to preach with boldness, God, and and more signs and wonders that will bring up more chances because we just saw this one miracle where this layman is healed and now hundreds of people are trusting in you. We want more of that. No mention of stop the threats. It was just, Lord, be aware of their threats, which I think he is. Lord, hear their threats and give us more opportunities to warrant more threats. They didn't shy away from the persecution. They didn't shy away from the discrimination. They actually leaned into it and said, yeah, 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 whatever. We want to see more people trust in Jesus. We want to see more people experience miracles and healing and signs and wonders so that they will know there's something to this so that we will see more people become part of God's family. If I were to ask you today to write down your top prayer requests, would that be at the top of your list? Is it begging God for opportunities to share Jesus with more people? Asking for boldness so that even in difficult situations, even in places where you might be looked down on, even in places where it might be awkward, you're still able to represent that you are a follower of him and show the difference that he makes in your life? Is it asking God for miracles to take place? Not not just, you know, supernatural miracle, the supernatural things, but the, the miracles that take place when God does a work in someone's life and, and they start to realize, oh, wow, I think God is really, is really pulling me toward him through this. You know, that happens. Asking God to work in someone's life in an incredible way so that they see that he is real. That's, that's what they were doing. They were demonstrating, hey, this is real. The God that we serve, he is powerful and he can do things that you could never imagine. What is your prayer list look like. I read this and I think to myself, man, my prayers are so self-centered compared to these people that that's where they went. Now, just to be clear, the Bible also tells us to bring our requests to God and to cast our cares on him and to, and that he cares about even the little things in our lives. I am not saying that we should keep those from God, that we shouldn't bring the, the, the self centered desires that we have, not, not selfish desires, but the desires that have to do with ourself and our situation and our family. God wants to hear those as well. But if we're just doing that and we're never doing the other stuff, then I think we've put the cart before the horse. I think we have missed the more important things that we are supposed to be bringing to God in our relationship with him. What does your prayer list look like? Does it look anything like what these people were praying? in the face of persecution, in the face of discrimination that most likely you and I have never experienced. They were threatened to stop telling people about Jesus and they doubled down and said, we want more. And that brings us to the last verse we're gonna look at today, verse 31. Acts chapter four, verse 31. Luke writes this for us. After this prayer, the meeting place, the building where they were gathering shook And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. This is the last thing we're going to talk about today. It's the response of God. They have prayed. Now, what is God's response? What is he going to do with this prayer request that they have made? There's no doubt at this point that God heard their prayer. If we were to have a time of prayer today, we've already done that a couple of times, and and we'll do it a couple more times today. If we have a time of prayer and suddenly the building shakes, then I'm going to think something's up with that. 
maybe it's an earthquake, or maybe if it's right after we pray, God is doing something. And shortly after that earthquake, or the building shook, and it doesn't actually say it was an earthquake, just the place where they were meeting shook. Imagine being in one of the surrounding buildings, right? That house right there just shook. Mine did not. That house shook. What is going on there, right? That's probably what happened. And, and you know, the outcome of that was they went out, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they went out and they preached the word of God with boldness. And so you know that God answered their prayer in the affirmative and said, yes, I am going to do exactly what you said. And they went about their lives looking for opportunities to share, and they had boldness to share and to, to teach but there's this little thing that's sandwiched in there that I want us to talk about a little bit, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they went out and they preached the word of God with boldness. What does that mean exactly? And we're not going to do a whole big theology lesson on that today, and there's a lot of different perspectives on filling. But I want to share with you a little bit about what the Bible says about the filling of the Holy Spirit. The word that is used in the Greek for this filling can mean that something is fulfilled or completed, or it can mean that something is kind of filled up with, like you would, you would fill a glass with water. The way it's used in the New Testament often has to do with being filled with some kind of emotion or feeling. And so the word is used to say they were filled with anger in one place. They were filled with fear in one place. They were filled with madness. They were filled with wonder. They were filled with jealousy. And then at times, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. These are all different times in the New Testament that use that same word to be filled with something. If you just look at the way that word is used, you start to get an idea for what it means to be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with anger, anger controls you. When you're filled with fear, fear has overcome you. It overpowers you. When you're filled with wonder, you can't escape that feeling. You're filled with wonder, like, wow, this is amazing. And you can't just turn that switch off. You're filled with wonder. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We can actually see a really nice teaching on this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul gives us a little brief kind of window into being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can pick up a lot from that. So let's turn over there real quick to Ephesians chapter 5, looking at verse 17. Here's what he says. Don't act thoughtlessly. But understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. There it is, the same word. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have talked this year about the baptism of the Holy Spirit a little bit. And when a person trusts in Jesus, how that Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them, they're baptized with, filled with, in a sense, the Holy Spirit. But the filling of the Holy Spirit talked about elsewhere in Scripture is a little bit different. It might sound like a person doesn't have the Spirit and then gets the Spirit, but that's not what filling necessarily means. As we've seen, you're filled with anger, you're filled with wonder, you're filled with madness, you're, you're, you're filled with a, a feeling, essentially, that has some control or influence over you. And that's what it's like with the Spirit. It's like being controlled by the Spirit or allowing the Spirit to have control over your life and your actions. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The clearest example is where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What happens when you're drunk with wine? That wine controls you. When you're drunk, you lose your inhibitions. You start to do things you wouldn't normally do. You fail to do things that you ought to do when you're drunk. 
Because that wine has, has exerted some control over your actions. The filling of the Spirit is the same way. In fact, Paul even mentions it as a command. It's not a passive thing. It's not something that just happens to you. It's something that happens as you submit yourself to God and say, God, I want your spirit to control my life. What happened to this early church that did not have a lot of theology lessons yet? This early church, when they prayed, they submitted themselves to God, the sovereign God, the creator of the world, the one whose will controls everything. God, we pray for this. We ask for boldness in sharing your word with people. Even though we're getting threats right now, we ask for signs and wonders and miracles so more people will come to know you. They submitted themselves before God. They prayed according to his will and they were filled with the spirit and they went out and preached boldly. What happened there? They submitted humbly to God and the Holy Spirit worked with them and influenced and directed their actions out in the world. And that's something that is still available for you and me today. I think a lot of times we go about our lives viewing that, 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 that we have the church box that we talked about recently, and we have the spiritual box, and it doesn't really influence the rest of the things we do. When the Spirit is filled in your life, it means that the actions and the words and the behaviors that you have are all being done in accord with God's Holy Spirit and a sensitivity to Him and a submission to Him and a willingness to have God continue to influence your life. It means we don't close that door when we walk out of church or when we close our Bible or when we say amen. It means as we go through our life, we continue to have this sensitivity to God through his spirit and saying, Lord, how are you wanting me to act in this situation? One of the easiest ways to get started with that is just to maintain a constant attitude of prayer, a constant conversation with God. Whereas you go throughout your day, you're saying, Lord, I submit myself to what you want me to do. You don't have to say it that way. That might sound old school. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? Lord, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to respond to this. Lord, I want your spirit to guide me in this. And as you do that and you submit yourself to God's spirit, instead of submitting yourself to some other influence in your life, Paul used drunkenness as his example. Don't submit yourself to some other influence to let that have control over you, whether it's alcohol or drugs or some other thing that you do to cope with whatever is going on that exerts influence over you. No, no, no. Let the Holy Spirit influence your life. And that's what it means to be filled with the spirit is it is letting the spirit have control over you. It's something that Paul says we are commanded to do. It's not a passive thing. He says, don't be foolish, but understand God's will. Don't be drunk, but be filled with the spirit. Let God's spirit direct your life. So when Luke says in Acts 4.31, that the believers were filled with the spirit, these were, these were already followers of Jesus at this time. I don't believe they were getting the spirit for the first time. We know for sure John and Peter weren't getting the spirit for the first time. They were allowing themselves to be controlled and directed by God's spirit in response to their prayer request, asking for God to work and to give them boldness and their submission to him. And then they went out and did the things that God wanted them to do. And so the question for all of us today is, why not us? We have the same God that we serve today, the same Holy Spirit today. If you've trusted Jesus as your savior, he's living inside of you today. But is he really guiding every aspect of your life? Have you turned all of that over to him? Or are there parts that you hold on to for yourself? And say, yeah, Jesus is a part of my life here, here, and here. But there's this thing over here that he's not really involved in. God wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. That's why he gives us his spirit. That's why Jesus said it's better if I leave so I can send the spirit. Because he can be with all of you all at the same time. That's God's Holy Spirit. What are you controlled by? What are you filled by? Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it doubt? anxiety? 
There are so many things that we let have a hold in our life more than they should. And we need to replace those things with a trust and a reliance on God's Holy Spirit to be filled with his spirit. If we learn anything from the example of the early church, we will humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, I want you to work through my life. And I understand what that means. I understand that if I live that way where I'm controlled by the spirit, I understand that it might cause some people to not like me. I understand that at some point it might even cause there to be threats and discrimination. I understand that at some point it may require me to experience persecution like I've never experienced before because I'm not just going with the flow anymore. I'm actually standing up for God, but because I'm being controlled by the spirit and I'm allowing the spirit to have that influence in my life, I know that these are enemies not of me, but of God. And so I can move forward with boldness and I can stand for my faith with strength and understand that God is with me in whatever I do because I am controlled by, I am filled with the spirit. That is something I think all of us here can commit to and it will absolutely change our lives. I think that a lot of us, we trust in Jesus. We, we take advantage of all the benefits that that has. That includes the fellowship of the family of God, the church that is here the people that we're close to that encourage us and support us and pray for us and we walk through life together and all of that is wonderful. But God did make us for more than that. God did make us to be lights in dark places. God did make us to go do bold things for him. God did make us so that we can share other, with other people the joy and the peace that we have found in him. And even if that's hard to do, that's what it means to let God's spirit have control in your life life. Let's bow our heads together and just pray. Pray with me now. God, we need this conviction in our lives. God, we need your Holy Spirit to show us where we've been holding on to things that we haven't been willing to turn over to you, where we've been filled with all sorts of doubt and fear and anxiety. We've been filled with anger, some of us. We've been filled with frustration, with jealousy the Bible talks about being filled with. We don't want any of those things to control our lives. We want to be filled with your spirit. And so I pray for a fresh filling. Not, not that those who trusted in you don't have your spirit already, Lord, but we may not be influenced, controlled by, directed by your spirit in everything we do. And so God, I pray for a fresh filling, a fresh direction, a fresh guidance. We recognize that you are the sovereign God of the universe that created us that we are rebellious against you, that you have invited us to be part of your family, something that we do not deserve, but we are so incredibly thankful for, Lord. And now help us not to live like that's just something in the past, but that it's something that presently makes a difference in our lives. God, we pray now, hopefully all of us, we pray for boldness to share you with others, even if it's at personal risk to ourselves. We pray that you would do incredible things in the lives of people around us to give opportunities to point to you and to give you the glory. Maybe, maybe that's healing. Maybe that's a, a divine appointment that happens. Maybe that's something that anybody else would call a coincidence. But just the way it happens, we know that you are orchestrating. The Bible says that there are good things that you are preparing for us to do ahead of time so that we can walk in them. We pray that you will help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit, to see those things when they happen and to actually move on them and act on them, Lord. Will you control every aspect of our lives as we submit humbly to you? And in Jesus' name we pray.